Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and receive weekly grief guidance from me, monthly group grief support calls, and the first look at upcoming books, online courses, and projects, become a patron now at patreon.com slash Just $3 a month gets you access to everything there is to see on Patreon, plus connection to a beautiful group of grievers just like you. Unlock grief support now for $3 a month and support this show at patreon.com slash Shelby Thank you so much for listening. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. Today, I'm sitting across from elite ultra runner, writer, and mom, Katie Arnold, and we're talking about the loss of her father less than 10 weeks after the birth of her second baby. We'll touch on using running to cope with grief and loss, the strange parallels between motherhood and grieving, and why it's absolutely normal to imagine your own impending death after a loved one dies. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to create a world where grief is welcomed, normalized, and even embraced. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Katie Arnold is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Running Home, published in 2019 by Random House, a memoir about navigating her father's terminal diagnosis and death through a path of mindfulness and leveraging the healing power of being active and outdoors in nature. She's a longtime journalist and an elite ultra runner who won the prestigious 2018 Leadville 100 Mile Trail Race. She's a contributing editor at Outside Magazine, where she created and launched the Raising Rippers column about bringing up adventurous children on Outside Online. She lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, with her husband and two daughters. Grief Growers, I am really excited to introduce you to Katie Arnold, who is the author of Running Home, uh, a really neat book that combines the physical experience of running with the mental, emotional, spiritual experience of grief. And I have not read a lot of running books, but I have read a lot of grief books. And putting these two things together, there was a lot more symbolism and a lot more beauty and a lot more pain than I expected. So I'm really excited to to go on this journey with you, to make this run with you um, this week, Grief Growers. So Katie, welcome to the show. And if you could please start us off with your lost story. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, yeah, my uh, my story is really that um, in 2010, uh, maybe two or three months after I gave birth to my second daughter, I learned that my father had um, terminal cancer. It was kidney cancer, and it was um, very aggressive and fast moving. And um, there was little to be done for him. And um, so sort of as quickly as my daughter was growing, my new baby was growing, my father was declining. And I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and he was living in Virginia um, on a farm there. And um, I flew back and forth um, 
several times that fall to be with him and to help my stepmother as best I could. And, um, you know, he passed away, I think it was less than 10 weeks from when he was diagnosed um, to the day he died. And um, the experience for me was I had never lost a parent before, you know, I'd lost grandparents, but this was my first real profound experience with deep grief. And what was so um, new to me or unexpected was how physical grief was. And so on those trips back and forth to Virginia, I knew that grief was an emotional state, a sadness, a resistance to what was happening, but I didn't know it was physical pain as well. And so each trip that I made to Virginia I sort of accumulated more and more of those, those physical sensations of grief, the body aches, um, just the strange sensations, the weight. I felt like I was carrying a weight on my back. And that really stayed with me through his dying. And then um, shortly after he died, it sort of morphed into um, anxiety. And it became, I became anxious and frightened that I was dying as well. And that went on about 18 months of just this really acute anxiety. I would get a feeling in my body. And because I'm a writer and I've been a writer my whole life, have a very vivid imagination. And I would imagine in my head that the pain I was feeling was um, a serious illness um, and that I was dying. And I didn't know at the time that that is not uncommon when you're in grief is to sort of take on the pain of the person you've lost um, but it was, it was quite frightening for me, um, because as I mentioned, I had a new baby. I also had a two, two year old toddler. And, um, so life felt very fragile um, to me at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for sharing the extent of that, because this is a normal experience in the aftermath of loss. And frankly, I didn't know it until probably about two, three, four years after my mom died and I started studying grief and I would see these both scientific studies, but then anecdotal experiences as well, where people would quote unquote, get the same thing that their loved one had before they died, but it wouldn't be that. Um, and only in a few situations has it actually been, I am ill in some way. It's more, I am taking on the pain of that. I'm reflecting the physical experience of what they just died from. Like it's very much, um, I think in psychology, when they talk about mirroring emotions, it's almost like you're mirroring physical symptoms. And this was very true in my story as well. Um, my dad had two brain aneurysms and I got a bunch of headaches one summer and thought I also had brain aneurysms. And my, I can't believe to this day, my mother indulged me by letting me get like an MRI or a CT scan or something just to make sure. Um, and then after my mom died from breast cancer, I was convinced I also had cancer. And so it's so normal, but like nobody's talking about it. And so we're all sitting in our houses going, are we all crazy? I think we're all crazy. When in reality, just about everybody who has lost somebody has physical symptoms of that grief in some way. So I'm really glad that you shared that. Um, I think immediately I want to dive into these really lovely and heartbreaking connections that you made in your book between motherhood and grieving. Um, because you were giving birth to raising very, very small children pretty much simultaneously with the death of your dad. And it's like you had these two wide open windows to the experience of entering the world and the experience of leaving it. Yeah. One of my favorite, if I can read you a little bit of your book, um, 
my favorite uh, piece that I had highlighted here is nothing drives home mortality like motherhood. When you care for a wrinkled, helpless creature who depends on you for everything, from whom you are inseparable, you realize that you absolutely cannot, must not die. And then you watch your father die, and you realize that you absolutely will. And someday, so will they. Just not now, please. Not for a very, very, very long time. And this this superimposed wish of I've just seen death with my own eyes. I'm looking in the mirror. Don't die. Don't die. I'm looking at my children. Don't die. Don't die. It's this very, <sighs> I'm even losing my breath talking yeah. about it. Well, it was, it did feel like this was my mantra and my just wish on my lips. Like for the first, you know, 18 months after my father died was like, you know, I, I think I'd gone all that time in my life as you do when you're young, you know, thinking that death is an abstraction and that it doesn't happen or it happens to other people. And, you know, when it happens in your immediate family circle, right after giving birth, it was like just these, this perfect storm of realizing how precious life is to see this newborn come into the world that you've grown inside of you. I mean, I remember when my daughter was born, I was just, I couldn't get over the fact that she came out with fingernails. Like I was growing this creature inside <laughs> of me with fingernails, like down to that just tiny detail. And, and then at the same time, simultaneously to experience the very swift decline um, of a parent was just it was, yeah, it was like, I was just kind of wedged in between, you know, just how precious and fleeting life is. Um, and so it was really, I wouldn't say it's a prayer because I'm, I don't pray in that way, but it, it felt like um, this mantra on repeat in my brain, you know, please, please, please. And it was all consuming the anxiety, you know, like, as you mentioned that those feelings of like, maybe I'm dying too. It was, it was just, it was like this repetitive loop in my brain. And my brain was very creative. It came up with like, okay, maybe it's not elbow cancer this week, but maybe, (laughs) you know, maybe you have melanoma or maybe that headache is a brain tumor, you know, and it was like wily. It was very sneaky and creative. And, you know, I understand now that as a writer, right, my imagination is my, my gift. And it was just my imagination kind of ran amok and was no longer my ally, but sort of my, <clears throat> my worst enemy during this time. Well, because there's an out-of-orderness that death brings into our lives, I think. It's like the realization that that can actually happen. And so if you're like, wow, if I live in a world where death happens, what else is possible? And of course, we don't go to the good what else, like maybe all of our mountains are made out of cotton candy. It's like maybe everyone I love has cancer. Right. That negative (laughs) bias comes screaming into focus. I know. And it really does become like a matter of training your mind. And, And so in some ways, this grief experience and this profound anxiety was an invitation to kind of really study my mind and work with my mind to change that story in my head. Um, and we have so much more control over that than we realize. And, um, but I, you couldn't, I couldn't, you know, experience that or work with that in the immediate aftermath. You know, the first 18 months was just, as you know, 
when you're in grief, it's just like you're in the fog. It's just triage. It's getting through the day. You know, mm. you're not working on strategies. You're just doing little, taking little steps each day to sort of move you forward. But I had no, you know, I didn't have a grand plan or a strategy. I didn't, um, you know, I wasn't working toward anything. You're just like literally fumbling forward. But it was after when I kind of popped out of that really intense period that I saw that I, you know, I can control the stories in my head and I, um, I can change those stories so that they're not looking and only seeing the negative, you know, excuse me, only seeing like the scariest stories, but choosing to, you know, focus on the positive and the positive outcomes that we can't see that lie ahead. You, You know, our tendency as humans is to look at the negative. And I've always been an optimist, which is, you know, like I've considered myself an optimist. And I think that that's a paradox that can stand. Like you can be an optimist and believe that life is working out in the way it should and toward the positive good, but you can still have this profound anxiety and and the two are not um, compatible. I'm really glad that you said that. And I've also never heard that before on this show um, is that I can be optimistic and still terribly anxious. Um, because I think that when anxiety rolls through the front door, we're like, oh my God, now I'm an anxious person. Now I'm a negative person. And so there feels like this, our identity is slipping through our fingers. Right. And that's what I think what I was going through a lot was like, why am I such a pessimist? Like I've always been this fairly upbeat can do, you know, like just keep moving kind of person. And, um, and, and so, right. And, you know, on a, on top of the fact that I was anxious, then I thought, well, gosh, my essential self has changed mm. and I'm no longer who I thought I was. And that's not, that was not the case. It was just the anxiety became this negative feedback loop in my mind. And I, you know, it just, it would kind of keep spinning and, and create more momentum. And it becomes this, you know, repetitive loop, these intrusive thoughts that are really hard to break. And really what helped me and I, and that's basically the story that I tell in running home is, was, you know, being in motion and running into the wilderness. And so, um, when I would run, I would, you know, the repetitive motion in my body, my legs, my arms moving in unison, you know, my feet on the ground would sort of lull my worry mind into a quieter space as like a moving meditation. And so I was able to find relief from those intrusive thoughts and that anxiety while I ran. Um, It didn't cure me of it, of course. It just helped me manage the anxiety and also to detach from a little bit and say, like, this is not me. This is not my essential self. This is a state I'm in right now. And that was really helpful because when you you start to think this is all you are anymore as, like, the most anxious Mm -hmm. person on the planet, that only digs you deeper, I think, into that hole. And so running was my way to kind of find my way back to myself a little bit. Yeah. And I, and I have this message that anxiety sometimes sends me, I don't know if this is true for you. Um, but sometimes anxiety will yell, this is all there is. This is all there is to focus on. This is all there is to worry about. This is all of the components of your life. There is no more. And to do something physical that forces you to be somewhere else. It's like, look, brain, I've just provided you an alternative to anxiety. And it doesn't, you're correct. It doesn't erase anxiety, but it's like, look, we are capable of doing something else. This is not all there is. 
Um, and that's gorgeous. It does feel all consuming. I remember that feeling of like, I couldn't get away from it. Um, even as I had these tiny precious babies who were so darling, um, you know, I would look at them and be like, please let me live to see their, you know, high school graduation. You just the thoughts. I mean, those thoughts sort of are normal with motherhood, I think, because that like, you're like, oh my gosh, I, I, I want to be alive for this. Like this is so profound, but it was just, you know, amplified, you know, by, by my father's death. And, um, and so running, as I said, was kind of, um, a way to lull my brain into a quieter, calmer space. And not every run was this like beautiful, you know, meditative state, you know, the first 15 minutes of any run when I would go out and I was going out like in, and I still do into the mountains. So I, I wasn't in or on my city streets or on in the, in the neighborhood, you know, what I craved as much as the physical motion of running and the endorphins that come with running and sort of that runner's high was, was time in nature and was the wilderness and feeling connected to something much larger than myself and my grief that didn't diminish my grief or make it insignificant, but sort of put it into context. And I just, um, I felt part of something larger than myself and connected to the natural world. And, um, I've always been very, um, you know, at home in nature and outside more so than indoors. And so it would make sense that I would go there to find that solace and that connection. Um, and so running in some ways was just the easiest way and the fastest way to get as far into nature as possible, right? It was like faster than walking and easier than riding my bike, you know? And, and so I would just, it was like I was seeking myself in the wilderness. Yeah, and and very little equipment required. Very little. It's a very it's a low spend activity. <laughs> um, Mom, that's that was a huge thing, right? Like I used to be really into mountain biking, and my I my babies were born, and I was like, I'm feeding and maintaining my babies. I cannot maintain a bicycle and like you know make sure it's running smoothly. So for running, all I had to do was just put on my sneakers and go and. Um, and as a grieving person too, that helps when it's simple, when you can just, it doesn't require a lot of steps. Um, it was, it was um, the right thing for me at the time. It's incredibly practical. And one of my favorite um, interactions that you have in the book is actually walking with your friend, Natalie. Mm, yeah. And there's this visual that you spoke about in the book that I actually started using now that's helped tremendously. And that's this, I'm carrying two plastic jugs, invisible plastic jugs up the side of a mountain and they're bottomless. They're, they're filled with all of my worries, all of my thoughts, all the annoyances. And as you're walking, you're dumping out each jug and after you dump one out, the other one's full and vice versa. So it's like this never ending process of I'm dumping out the contents of my brain. The ground is soaking them in. They no longer belong to me. And um, it's just so neat how walking, running, being in any kind of motion provides us with the illusion of progress. It's like, even if I'm not quote unquote, doing anything with my grief, I'm still in motion. And so there's, there's an opportunity for, for new circumstances, for new thoughts, for different doorways to appear. Um, and I just loved that. The instant I saw that, I was like, oh, I'm keeping that one. Yeah. You know, I haven't thought about that for a while, but, uh, 
I feel like I could use that right now, right? I think yes. Could we have those worries and the bottomless worries of like, oh my gosh, am I going to be healthy? Or it's my family. What about the economy? And it's like that. I that day that I felt that with those having those pictures in each hand, it was it it was amazing because I felt them. I was dumping them. And then I felt they were filling back up, but that did not fill me with despair. It was just like, uh, I had an acceptance about it. It's like, oh, right. Like as long as we're alive, there are these sort of bottomless worries. We don't have to carry them and we can just keep dumping them and they may keep filling up, but it's like this very calm um, feeling of like, okay, I'm just going to dump them again. And then there they are again. And And so it takes out that resistance that I think as humans is so natural to us. Like, I want to resist what's hard. I want to resist what makes me stressed. And the resistance that we put up actually makes it worse and it makes us suffer more. And so in that moment, just dumping them and then, oh, there they are again. It it was like a release that um, I could use right now. I think we all could. Yeah. Um, And I want to switch gears and talk about your relationship with your dad, Mm -hmm. because it's clear that it's a complicated one. Mm -hmm. And I felt like throughout the whole, like there was an arc of running home where not only were you running as a child and then running faster and longer races as an adult, but also kind of on this quest for answers about your dad and his life and the person that he was even post death. Um, And, and that was so fascinating to watch because I think so many times in the grief community, we have this temptation or almost an order to enshrine the people who have died. And so we can't talk about their their humanness and their shortcomings and the ways that they've disappointed us. But you you don't hold back in that. And I think that's really refreshing. Yeah, it was it was really a journey. I mean, it was it was very much as I write about it in the book, this very organic unfolding of understanding about who my father was kind of that was parallel to my discovering who I was as a, as a writer and a runner, right? Like those two were happening at the same time. And, um, you know, really what it was for me is my father was a national geographic photographer for his whole career. And so he left this incredible archive of photographs, which we knew about, right? You know, my stepsister and my sister and I, I mean, my stepmother rather, and my sister and I knew that he had these incredible body of work and both professional and personal images that he'd taken over his lifetime. And, but what we didn't, or what I didn't know was that he also had this incredible archives of writings, of letters, of journals, um, he had audio cassette tapes, he had videotapes. And so, you know, the result was he had this incredible documentation of his life. And just by his nature, he was a um, very astute observer as photographers are, right? They're waiting for that moment to capture. And, you know, they're tuned to all the subtleties in life. And so that they know, here's the moment, right? That is sort of ordinary, but also gorgeous at the same time. And so my father was um, a master of that and paying attention and capturing those details. And so he left behind this, this archive and um, it was all there in his office, kind of neatly organized. He was obviously knew he was running out of time and um, he was very methodical with his um, 
material and he didn't hide any of it. I mean, it was really all there for us to find. And my stepmother made it very clear and generously said, you know, that this was all for my sister and me. And um, so the result is that after he died, I gradually went through it and it was too painful to, you know, to dive into all at once chronologically, methodically. Also, that's just not how my brain works. And, um, but I did it in little bits and pieces. And so what happened is that my father began to reveal himself to me in ways that I hadn't known him to be when he was alive. And, um, so in many ways, I know him better now than he did, than I did when he was with us. And um, that's both sort of beautiful and a gift, and it's also painful. Um, but right, the book is, it, it, it explores sort of what I discover. And a lot of it was different than what I thought. Um, and that in itself is a gift, my father's generosity and leaving that material behind and sort of documenting his life laws and all, you know, he was very forthcoming. And um, I think a model really in how to live, which is um, to sort of be truthful to who you are. And, you know, I guess the term is now like own your life, but, you know, he really did. And um, no one's perfect at all. And I think, you know, it took me going through his material to realize um, that our imperfections are kind of what make us who we are. Did you ever find out something that you didn't want to know? Like you wish you could unknow? Um, in the moment, and I won't go into specifics because, you know, I talk, I write about this in the book. Um, but it, there were a couple of things that I found that in the moment of finding, I kind of had to snap the book shut. Like I was looking at one of my father's journals and there was something just really painful um, in there again that I that I write about in running home. And um, my first impulse is just that like hot feeling in your face, like oh my god, I wish I didn't know that. Um, and I, I put the book down, and this happened on, on several occasions. And I kind of had to, and both of those times, I think I had to go outside and get fresh air, and even maybe I would go for a run and try to run run through it or into it, not really away from it, but just kind of let it settle in my body in a different way. And, um, but then after the fact, and I mean, after the fact, like, you know, weeks or months, and even now years after, I wouldn't want to unknow anything. There's nothing right now that I know that I wish I hadn't found out. It was painful and sort of would take your breath away in the moment. Um, but I think ultimately they all those things that I'm talking about kind of provided a really a, a fuller truer picture of my father and yes there's things in other people's lives that they would wish they hadn't done and things for sure in our own lives right that we wish oh, I wish I hadn't done that or um, that you want to slam the book on but really um, I found a way to sort of bring them in and accept them. And I, and I wouldn't want to not have found them because I feel like they're sort of, they show me a, a, the real side of my father, the one who was human and had made mistakes and had regrets. Um, yeah. So I just, 
you know, but definitely in the moment they're painful. Yeah. And I think, um, that's an experience that happens a lot when we find out things after the fact, because death ends life, not a relationship as Tuesdays with Maury, that wonderful book has said and made widely known. Um, and so we continue piecing together pieces of our people after they die. And sometimes some of those pieces are things we would rather not have known, or they're things that disrupt the stories that we've been telling ourselves our entire lives. Right. And so we have to change our whole narrative because of their, this new narrative that we've uncovered or discovered. Um, yeah. 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 So we want to stop knowing those things. Like I'm looking right now, I'm sitting up in my loft office in my house and I'm looking at like five cardboard boxes of my dad's material that my stepmom sent me. Um, a few months ago when she sold the farm where they lived for four years. And I know there's things in those boxes. There's like little discoveries waiting to be made. And some of them may be um, really wonderful and some of them may be unexpected, but um, I'm sort of excited that I have them still, right? Because finding those things is a way to kind of keep that relationship um, kind of, alive. And, um, I feel my dad's presence when I find, when I find things. And I would say like, you know, from experience, my own haphazard going through things, it's just, you know, that's how I work. And, um, I don't, I wish I had the brain or I actually don't even wish I had the brain, but some people would have the mind to sit down and like go through everything very systematically and chronologically and, kind of amass this very complete intact picture. And that's just not how I work at all. You know, as a, as a writer, I'm, I sort of go on instinct and, but I will say that, you know, it helped to take it slowly over quite a few years and not to just dive in all at once. Um, but to really pace yourself just to use a running term with like, with those things that you find out and with those discoveries, because perhaps like sitting and getting it all at once would have been very unsettling and disruptive. Um, but in the way I did it, it seemed to, um, it, it seemed to, to be kind of nurturing rather than destabilizing. Ah, I like both of those words, nurturing versus destabilizing. And another quote that I highlighted in your book is super simple and super short. It says, you have your whole life to grieve. And I think that um, sometimes I feel like people are in a rush to grieve and get it over with. Definitely. And <laughs> this, this teeny tiny little permission slip that you've embedded in here, you have your whole life to grieve, is like, you can slow down, you can take the pieces as you find them. I, I mean, circumstances permitting, you don't have to sell the house tomorrow. You don't have to get rid of all the clothes. You don't have to get rid of all the letters. You don't have to consume all the information all at once either. Um, and it's almost like a permission for things to keep showing themselves to you yeah. over time. That was certainly like a big theme for me in grieving my dad and kind of a bit of the magic of, of grieving him was that these things would just sort of appear and kind of present themselves kind of I describe it in the book like mushrooms after rain like they just kind of pop up when you're not expecting them and um yeah I don't think there has to be a timeline you know at all and um 
we sort of went through my dad's material really slowly. And, you know, it's been nine years since he died. And my stepmom just sold the farm, which felt in a way like I was worried it was going to feel like him dying all over again because so much of him was still there and kind of intact, although we dismantled some of it. Um, but it really felt like when I got to what I thought would be the end, you know, the day that we said goodbye to the farm, I realized like my dad's story still hasn't ended, you know, and my story with him has not ended and it keeps going in ways that I can't imagine or predict, you know, it keeps going every time someone reads the book, like the story has rippled outward. And um, so I really came to understand grieving my dad and writing this book that like the death is not the end, right? It's not this point that finishes everything. I mean, him in a physical form, absolutely, that I can talk to or call on the phone or hear his voice, you know, a thousand percent. But um, there's more to the story, right? And that the relationship keeps going. Um, it just is in a different form. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, again, it's permission to allow that to be what it is instead of trying to cram grief into however many years you think it should take or however many months you think it should take, which I'm like, ouch, that sounds painful um, to do it all at once. And I think people, you know, our, our society doesn't really know how to grieve or how to support grieving people. So there's this sense of like time heals everything. And like, you know, a, a full year, I remember thinking that it would be a year, right? Like all the big holidays and seasons and anniversaries come and gone and then like magically we'd be done. And, um, it just doesn't work that way. It's not linear, right? There's times when it's, you know, it's quieter in me. And then there's times when it really comes to the surface and it's painful and it's, you kind of can't predict it. But I think in some ways I've learned that the grief, those feelings, you know, as if the grief doesn't go away, then my connection to my father doesn't either. And um, I've just learned to allow them in. I mean, it's not, there's definitely times when it's uncomfortable. My anxiety often comes back in the winter, which is when my dad died. And, you know, even the feelings of physical pain or fear that I have something too will kind of come back in December. And I wish that weren't the case. You know, it's not comfortable. Um, but it's, I've learned that, oh, there it is again. And to sort of like, just know it and, and not exactly make friends with it, but just know that it's not, that it's a deep wellspring within me and that there's probably no end to it. Yeah. And this sense that um, it's okay that it keeps showing up. Yeah. Like it's not a signal that something's wrong or you need to change your life or you need drugs or you need whatever it is to like <laughs> make it go away. Um, grief has become routine. Yeah, it's totally okay. It's just part of like the fabric of who we are and it's stitched in there and you can go for a long time without really feeling it. And that's fine too. That doesn't mean you love them any less or that you've moved on or you've forgotten them. It's just, it has its own topography, right? As I write in the book, like it's the, the jagged highs and the lows and then sometimes you're in the flats and kind of rolling through and then it'll pop up again and um it's all okay I like I talked to my friend Natalie 
who um, we, I talk about in the book and she lost her parents like 20 odd years ago. And she, you know, every time I'm feeling particularly like anxious or, you know, the feeling of grief rises up, she'll, you know, remind me or say to me that like she'll, she's had the same feeling about her father who's been dead, you know, 20 years that like, it's when you least expect it and it's okay. And so just, you know, talking to her has helped me realize that you're right. It doesn't mean that like, I'm not getting over it or there's something wrong. It just means that I'm human. And this draws a lot of parallels between kind of what you learned or processed while running, especially in the second half of the book, the difference between winning versus finishing the race. Um, The sense that maybe grief can't be conquered, but I can take it with me through the end of my life, or I can run the race that I'm supposed to run um, with grief. And can you talk a little bit about that in like the physical running perspective of like this pressure to win and pressure to do well and pressure to succeed versus doing my best for me, which I think a lot of people feels like, Oh, you mean a participation trophy? (laughs) Like, yes, I mean a participation trophy. Yeah. You know, um, the running, I've been a runner my whole life and it was my father who sort of got me into running kind of accidentally, which is, um, a great part of the story. Um, but you know, I always ran for other reasons than to compete. You know, I've, I've, became a runner right around the same age. I knew I wanted to be a writer right around seven. And um, the two have always been totally linked to me. Like when I move my body, I move my ideas in my mind and I come up with ideas and I sort of tap into this imagination when I'm moving. And so I've been fortunate to have this relationship with running that was always about way more than competition and in fact, I really didn't start competing until I was in my 40s after my dad passed away. And, um, and after I taught myself to run very long distances, which was my coping mechanism with grief, you know, I think, as I described, I was, I could find relief from my anxiety when I was running. And so I naturally wanted to run farther and to sort of bolster that sense of confidence I had that, oh my God, I'm not only am I not dying, but I'm actually strong and healthy. And um, so as I began to run, run farther and I would compete, I had, um, I found success at, at racing and I would win races. And that was really exciting. Um, but it, it created its own challenge of like, okay, I'm not running to win, right? Like I have a much deeper relationship with running. It's how I study my mind and how I make friends with my anxiety and how I am a writer in the world. Also, it's how I'm a parent, you know, running makes me a better mother. Um, I'm more patient. And, um, and so, but, but the ego loves to win. And so when, when I win races, I am, I'm always doing this practice. It feels like a daily practice of sort of coming back to the real deeper reasons I run. And um, it's really easy to get pulled out into those external measurements of success and like the trophies and the, you know, the podium finishes and all that. And and those feel great. But um, ultimately, I have a relationship with running that goes far deeper than the competition. And um, sometimes it's easier to stay true to that. And other times you get pulled out 
um, but but really running for me as this lifelong friend. And um, I, I want to do everything I can to sort of preserve that and honor it. I think that's a perfect place to ask this question. And that is if grief growers listening are interested in getting into running um, as an aid for their grief, what's a good first step? The great first step is, well, pick up a copy of my book, uh, Running Home, and it talks all about sort of that process of, of running through and into your grief. Many times people think running is a form of escape or I'm running away. Mm-hmm. And I actually really found that running has always been a, a way to run deeper into my true self and my truth as a person and um, running into my grief and my anxiety, right? Because in some ways running didn't make sense as a way for me to cope with my anxiety. Like I thought I was dying or I was afraid I would die. I was going to die. And yet I was running into the wilderness alone. It's kind of a higher risk you know, enterprise than just walking around the neighborhood. Um, well, right. And here's me getting your heart rate up too. I'm like, wait, wait. <laughs> so, um, but it didn't, yeah, it didn't, um, it didn't make sense, but it made total sense at the same time. And so I think the, um, I think if you have that feeling inside, like you want to try it, pick up a copy of running home, which does describe how I started. And, um, and then, you know, there's so many running resources online. The best part about running is that it really doesn't require a whole lot of gear. It doesn't require you. I run in the mountains. You don't need mountains as we're learning right now in, in, you know, quarantine, people are running marathons in their backyard. If you're not a runner and, or if you're just beginning, I obviously don't recommend running a marathon right out of the gate. Um, But really, you know, whether you're walking or you're running, being in motion can be such a balm to your grief and your anxiety. It's way like we, we have so many emotions when we're grieving and we need to release them from our bodies, right? Or else they build up and they become that physical pain that we talked about. And so um, walking is a fantastic way to start. And, and then you can gradually you know, ease into running. And I will say the outside part is so important get so um, much sort of mood boosting chemicals and endorphins when we're outside in the fresh air and vitamin D from the sun. So I encourage you to, to be outside if you can. Yes. Yeah. And I will raise my hand and second that advice as well, because I feel like a useless lump. And then I go outside and I was like, oh, I just needed air. <laughs> <laughs> the sun on your face and the wind in your, you know, everything. Yeah. The wind on your skin and you're just reminded that you're alive and you're part of something bigger. Yes. Yeah. It's a wonderful way to get out of your head. Um, so Katie, for people who are looking for your book or anything else about the the writing that you're doing, where can they find you and your work? Yeah. You, the best place to go is to my website, which is katiearnold.net. And you can find a copy. You can find my book on Amazon. Um, it's also available at local bookstores everywhere. And if they don't have it there, um, you can order it from bookstores. I think supporting local bookstores, especially now, you know, when the economy has been so hard hit is so important. So like I just placed an order with my local bookstore for, um, some new leads and, um, they are going to, you know, they have curbside, so you can pick it up, um, you know, 
support your bookstore. It's also available on Audible as an audiobook, which I narrated, which was really exciting. And you can find it on Kindle as well online. Um, and again, or you can go to randomhouse.com. But all those places are you know, widely available. And I'm also leading running and writing retreats. Um, I have one scheduled that was just was supposed to be happening in May, but for obvious reasons, we've rescheduled it. And it will be in September in Santa Fe at the Santa Fe Writers Lab, which is part of the um, prestigious Santa Fe photo workshops. And um, that's a four-day writing and walking and sort of um, creativity retreat, sort of unlocking your imagination by being in motion. And, um, and I'll be doing more of those um, to come. And those will be announced on my website as well. Oh, cool. Katie, thank you so much for joining us on Coming Back today and for sharing your story of running home in the aftermath of loss. Thank you so much, Shelby. It was a really wonderful conversation with you. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Katie Arnold for coming on Coming Back to talk about her book, Running Home. Katie came back by running and running and running some more, of course, but also by sharing her grief with her friend Natalie and continuing to uncover and discover more about her dad's life through the possessions he left behind. You can find Katie's book Running Home at kaniearnold.net. And as always, grief growers, you can find that link right here in the show notes. If you'd like to get online grief support for just $3 a month, pledge to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Shelby You'll instantly unlock access to weekly grief guidance prompts and monthly live calls with me. Our next live grief support call is happening soon on Monday, June 22nd at 7 p.m. Central Time. Thank you so very much this week to Robin, who I am welcoming into the Patreon family. I am so grateful to you. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and please tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you so much to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. <laughs>